0: Hey, everybody, Ray Lucchese here with Matt Lieb. Welcome to the next episode of the Greybirds on Storage podcast, the show where we get Greybirds storage bloggers to talk with system vendors and other experts to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. This Greybirds on Storage episode was recorded May 20th, 2020. We have with us here today Charles Fan, CEO of Membridge. So, Charles, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your company?
1: Great. Thanks, Ray. Uh, my name is Charles Fan, and I'm a co-founder and CEO of of Manverge. Uh, Before starting Manverge about three years ago, I was the SVP GM of the storage business unit at VMware and I was leading the team that developed the vSAN product. So uh, what we do is we develop software on top of persistent memory and we call our software big memory software and because we believe persistent memory changes the game uh, both the game of storage and the game of computing. Uh, the, uh, the new persistent memory hardware uh, pioneered by Intel with their obtained persistent memory product that came out last year, really find the best world between memory and storage. Um, and, and essentially you can use it as memory or you can use it as storage. And what we are trying to do is bring both the capacity, uh, the low cost, and uh, the persistence of this new media to the application of both today and tomorrow so that you don't have to change your application. And then you can take advantage of both by the addressability and persistence of this new media uh, immediately.
0: So, I mean, when we had uh, the discussions last year with Intel about uh, the data center persistent memory, there were a couple of different, uh, I'll call it modes of operation for persistent memory. do you want to talk a little bit about which mode of operation you're using, or are you using them all? or: Yeah,
1: yeah, uh, And I think that's a great uh, question because that goes into the heart of what we do. Uh, if you're just getting the obtain persistent memory, there are two modes uh, uh, at the top of this uh, uh, taxonomy of modes. Uh, they call it memory mode or app Direct mode. When you're using it as memory mode, it's a compatibility mode where the operating system sees it just like DRAM, except it is bigger and it is a little bit slower.
0: And then memory mode, it's it's a just like any other volatile DRAM.
1: Right, it is not persistent, it's volatile, it's compatible. You do not need to change your app and it works right away. Uh, the downside is you don't get to enjoy the persistence capability of this memory. Right. And, and also there's a fixed ratio uh, with the 2LM algorithm where you tier between the DRAM and PMEM to deliver this memory service and its ratio is 8 to 1. Uh, So there's a various uh, set of restrictions, but the benefit you get is a transparent, compatible experience with your existing apps.
0: Mm -hmm. But just a larger storage, larger memory footprint, I guess, right?
1: Right, Yeah. Right. It gives you a larger uh, memory uh, footprint. So if you are constrained in the memory capacity, this gives you a good solution. Um, now, on the App Direct mode, there are actually two uh, sub-modes as well. Uh, there is a mode called App Direct Storage mode. Um, and what this does is similar to memory mode, but on the opposite side. So this delivers a 4K block device to your operating system. That's, yeah, so that just looks like an SSD or a hard drive. Um, so, so it's also compatibility mode that you do not have to change your application, and you can just use it as a fast SSD. Um, so so that's the, the benefit is you don't have to change anything. Now the downside, you don't get to use a byte addressable memory API, or, or you don't get to really get the, the full performance uh, from this underlying media, the low latency uh, that at a you know, couple hundred nanosecond is what you will now see uh, from the uh, storage mode basically access it with 4k blocks
2: do you have the ability to carve up your existing storage into i mean even among a uh, a device uh to use some segment of it as memory and and another segment of it as storage or is that um
0: all or none kind of thing
1: yeah you you can uh so that's called mix mode where you can have uh, both memory mode and storage mode co- configured on the same device. Uh, the catch is that you these configurations are done in the BIOS at the boot up time. So so once you configure it, it's fixed. And to change the configuration, you need to reboot your machine. Well, no on the fly changes. Right, no on the fly dynamic changes. And and now in addition to these two modes. Uh, we think the most powerful and most interesting is the third mode or the second sub-mode of AppDirect. That's a, that's a real AppDirect mode. So, so in this mode, essentially, you can have native access to the persistent memory and enjoy both the persistence and byte addressability at the same time. Um, now, the catch with this third mode is you need to be a developer. And you need to write your new app uh, to use this mode. So this is not a mode that's compatible either with memory or storage. This is a new, yeah, it's a new animal. It's a, it's a, you know, it has persistent pointers. It's a, it's a new way of reasoning about how you keep your data. And, and so, so this is a powerful and the most interesting mode, but it does require. Uh, a rewrite of your application. Uh, it's a new new API, new programming model. So that's what, what you have from hardware.
0: Okay, it seemed like to me that those various modes could be shared across CPUs or, or chips or something like that. Uh,
1: yes, yeah, so, so if you configured a memory in a certain mode, uh, both sockets in the uh, server can access that memory. Although there is a performance difference, um, the uh, the socket, the CPU that's in the right socket that's directly connected to this memory will get to access it faster, where the other one needs to go through the UPI link, and that will be a little bit slower.
0: Okay. So you're saying that um, of the app, you're using application direct mode, and you're using the byte addressable persistent storage version of this. Is that...
1: Yeah. So, so let me get into that. So what I just introduced is without Memverge. If you just get the Intel obtain, you have these modes to choose from. So what does Memverge software do? Is we are a virtualization layer. We are like a persistent memory virtualization layer. Uh, we manage the persistent memory in abdirect mode. In the last mode I introduced, the most powerful, interesting. But require a new programming model. So, because we control our layer of software, so we can do the app direct uh, method. And then we present to the applications above us in various APIs. Uh, it will support a, a volatile memory API that's compatible with the existing memory API, similar to the Intel memory mode, but we can do it. Uh, more flexible with more flexibility and with dynamic reconfiguration uh, as well. And then the most important uh, feature of our software-defined memory mode is that it has data services. And these data services actually takes native advantage of the persistence capability of the memory in order to deliver them themselves. So I'll give you a a, a good example. Um, one of the most important data services when you are talking about persisting data, which you know now with persistent memory, memory can actually persisting data, is snapshot. You know every self-respecting storage systems have snapshots, and that often <laughs> often becomes a, a differentiating capability between different uh, storage uh, systems.
0: A snapshot assumes that there's something like a volume or a file structure that you can be doing a snapshot on. So does Membridge present uh, like a volume type of an interface? So
1: uh, not necessarily. So when you are placing snapshot in the context of a file storage, yes, it needs to take a snapshot of that file directory structure, or the metadata, along with the data. Uh, But in a more general form, what snapshot does is it gives you an instant image of your state, uh, whether it's application state or data state. And that that allows you to roll back or to recover from this image of state at any time. And this could be a file directory. And in, in our case, it is for the entire application. Uh, So what we have invented here is world's first zero IO in memory snapshot, that we can capture the entire state of an application that includes, you know, all the state that are in memory that is supposed to persist, as well as the state even in the CPU cache. And we can capture them at that moment of time. And the trick is we can do that instantly. Now before, on memory, there's really no real snapshot. They were checkpointing. When you do the checkpointing, you capture the application state, and then you move that state to a storage device to persist it. And that that movement actually can take minutes if you have a few hundred gigabytes of memory state to capture. Now with persistent memory, we can do in-place checkpointing.
0: Okay, but you know, for an application, uh, let's say it's using persistent memory. There's both a DRAM state as well as PMEM state. Are you taking all, both of those and, and moving those to a persistent memory? Uh,
1: so, so essentially, we are managing both of those, and we are making sure they gets to move to the persistent memory first, and then we can do an instant in place snapshot. So when we actually perform the snapshot, there is no IO incurred. That's why we call zero IO, because the underlying memory media in this case, persistent memory is persistent in themselves. So while we are presenting a volatile memory API to the application, whenever the application does a snapshot or when the administrator invoke a snapshot, we would instantly capture the entire memory state and persist them without disrupting the running application. And we can do this repeatedly as frequently as once a minute. Uh, So you can capture a sequence of memory state and being able to roll back or recover or clone from any of those previous memory states. So
2: Charles, what's the use uh, case for for doing uh, a snapshot like this every
1: minute? Sure. Uh, So uh, that's a great question. So there are uh, two main use cases that we have worked with customers so far. Uh, The first use case is uh, a crash recovery use case. And uh, I'll maybe spend the next two minutes kind of describing how this workflow works. Uh, So this is most typically for in-memory databases or in-memory applications. Uh, the examples of application we work for uh, we work with include uh there's a time series in memory database called kdb uh, kdb um, We are also starting to work with some animation studios with their rendering software which are running in memory so what's in common between these in-memory databases and in-memory applications is they are all in memory because the demand of performance. From whether it's the the stream of stock trades coming at a hundred thousand trades per second and never stops while, while the market is you know is open. I've seen
0: uh, KDB used in stack benchmarks and stuff like that for security trading and that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's been very active.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think KDB is uh, uh, is not uh, you know widely known, but it is uh, very widely used in trading and market data. Uh, infrastructure,
2: incredibly high transactional databases, uh, incredibly model data.
1: Exactly. Among the leading financial institutions, it has a market share of approximately one hundred percent. The uh, uh, maybe that's a slight exaggeration. Uh, so. They are a good partner of ours, so I'm doing some free advertisements with them. But, but we are also working with quite a few other in-memory databases. You know, Redis is another one we support well. They're Hazelcast. Um, so there are quite a number of in-memory databases that are also popular with other uh, environments, and we support these all. And what, uh, what's common with them is while they are running, the, map, the database states are entirely kept in-memory. And uh, only the logs uh, gets to persist onto uh, storage onto SSDs. Uh, so, if in the case of a crash, when the when when this database goes down, uh, the recovery process involves you take the last copy of database it persisted, which is typically a day ago, the end of market of the previous day. So you load that into your memory. And then you replay your log uh, to capture, you know, to catch up to the crash state. And that replay can take a couple of hours because there are a, a billions of trades that has been logged. And uh, so the crash recovery process can take hours to complete. And that is a big pain point for these customers, even though it's not a frequent event. But when it happens, it's a big pain uh, for these covers to recover from these crashes. Now, with with our snapshot if they rerun really our software-defined storage service, uh, if we capture uh, the application state every few minutes, uh, as frequent of every minute. And we can do this in a non-disruptive and instant way so it doesn't impact the actual performance of the database while it's running. And then when you crash, in this case, you just recover from the last snapshot, which is you know a few minutes ago or, or, or one minute ago, and then and that recovery can be instant. And then you just have to replay the log for a few seconds to capture, you know, to to recover the database back to the crash point.
0: So in, the, in, in that case, would the would the logs also be on persistent memory or would they be on?
1: Yeah, the so logs can be on persistent memory. The logs can also be on SSD if you like. Um, so either way, it's just because the, the, the log replay, you don't have to replay from last night, from you know the beginning of the market, opening of the market. You just have to replay from the last snapshot. And that's like a one minute worth of trades. And you can replay that in maybe 20 seconds. So 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 the uh, whole recovery process can be reduced from a couple hours, maybe to one minute. So that's uh, two orders of magnitude improvement on the crash recovery use case.
0: So you, you mentioned earlier that and I, I'm not exactly certain I caught it properly, but you said you're you're mimicking a volatile memory uh, through Application Direct.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. So, so if you uh, if you look at what we do, we, we do it literally three things. So this is taking a step back. Uh, the first thing is compatibility. This is where we translate the App Direct uh, method into backward compatible APIs and we're adding other features through data services but doing all this without application change so that we make persistent memory compatible with existing applications while they can enjoy all the benefits this new media can provide so the first one is compatibility uh, and i think that was your question the second one is availability uh, and this touches on the uh, the, for example the crash recoveries through snapshot. Uh, In fact, I think for data services, the biggest value add from data services is to increase the availability of this persistence system. Um, And I'll dive more into that uh, a bit later as I describe the feature of our product. The third uh, functionality of our big memory software is scalability. And this is when you need to scale the memory you need from application beyond what's provided from a single server. So today, persistent memory is very good. It provides a bigger memory capacity than DRAM could. Uh, For a typical two-socket Intel server, it can support six terabytes of uh, obtained persistent memory, uh, Gen 1, the first generation of it. With Gen 2, that's coming out later this year. It's going to support eight terabytes per server, and it's expected to continue to increase Uh, with the Gen 3 that will come later. However, if you are moving all the application data into memory, even 8 terabytes might not be enough. And our software allows the persistent memory and DRAM to be pulled together across a pool of servers for them to become a single memory pool to serve an application. So the memory can be tiered to the... Uh, to the memory on a neighboring node uh, go beyond the limit of the single. Cell.
0: What's the what's the I'll call intercluster interface between, you know, server A that has, you know, two sockets and 6 terabytes and server B that has another two sockets and another 6 terabytes of persistent memory.
1: So so we uh, so on the physical side we recommend uh RDMA and we support both Rocky RDMA over converged Ethernet, as well as InfiniBand, um, and we also select uh, support selected, you know, low latency UDP uh, network such as SoloFlare. So essentially, these are all network with uh, single-digit microsecond latency, down to about two microseconds between servers, and we run our software on those interconnects. And in the future, when CXL comes out, and when the PCIe switching coming out, we will be supporting those interconnect. That's going to drive the latency down to hundreds of nanoseconds on the same order of magnitude as a persistent memory. Um, and, yeah, and on top of it, we virtualize these memories through this RDMA protocol and present them really in a single pool. So for the application, what they see It's just like DRAM. They don't see anything different. It's a big pool of DRAM. So if I was a developer, I'm trying to program in this memory, I basically can have up to 100 terabytes of memory on my fingertips. And I can design my data structure such that there's literally infinite memory at my disposal. And I can essentially have newer, interesting algorithms for real-time data processing.
0: So you're talking, you know, setting up, 20 some you know, 16 servers, dual socket, six terabytes each, and you've got 100 terabytes of, of complete memory, and you've got one address space with 100 terabytes of memory?
1: Uh, up to that amount. Of course, there could be bottlenecks elsewhere in the operating system, in the size of memory you can address. Uh, but on the overall system, uh, with a GA version that's come out later this year, will support 32 nodes of memory being um, pulled together into a single pool. And so later this year, Intel's 8-terabyte configuration will be supported. So essentially, you have 32 uh, 32 times 8, 256 terabytes of memory available.
2: In in this configuration, though, um, I can envision um, servers that are uh, memory-slash-persistent memory-heavy as part of the pool, where other more commodity processor-related servers uh, become a part of of that physical
1: cluster. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that will be a configuration that can be supported, but an optimal configuration, at least with the uh, the initial deployment, ah, uh, typically that uh, is typ- typically that every server is uh, is pretty heavy on obtain memory. Uh, the reason is that even though with these very fast network they are still slower than local memory. So with with running application directly on these servers, uh, in supplying the memory service to them, we prioritize local memory because it is faster. Uh, Therefore, it is desirable for every server in the cluster where the application is run have enough memory in itself, so most of the memory need can be achieved locally.
0: These, these sockets you know 32 cores each you know we're talking times 32 It's 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 a lot of cores
1: yeah yeah you, you essentially have a little supercomputer
2: I can see the of machine learning and AI um, is completely exploding um, and, and that surely goes beyond that of a simple database well not that any database is particularly simple but uh, sort of more raw database functions uh because of course it adds processing power to the equation as well. Everything is gonna operate that much faster because it's it's really operating on the memory bus rather than uh PCIe, uh at least to a greater extent.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think you are hitting the nail on the head uh there. In fact, uh, the two biggest initial use cases that we have identified, number one are uh, with financial environment with the low latency trading and market data use cases. The second one, and perhaps a bigger one, is the AI ML use case, like you just described. Um, you know, those are uh, dealing with data that are both large in capacity, as well as fast in terms of latency, especially when it comes to inference, when it needs to make decisions on the fly as the new data come in. So that's where uh, there is a common problem in a good set of AI, ML problems, they call it DGM. So what, what's a DGM problem? It's called, is data greater than memory? <laughs> when the data doesn't fit in memory, when you need to involve a disk, SSD, to place some of those data, those could be your feature library, uh, your embeddings, or could be the model themselves, then the performance could drop 100 or 1000 times just because the difference uh, between those two uh, media, between the memory.
0: And, and you're talking primarily the inferencing side of the AI, not the learning side or, or both?
1: So this would apply to both the training and the inferencing side, but this had a bigger impact on the inferencing side because of the demand on latency. You know, with training, it's a throughput game, uh, okay, how, how fast you can move data. And in our working with the AI ML uh, customers, we can improve training, like a 4X, 5X, uh, by providing a big memory solution to them. Now, on the inferencing side, we can improve inferencing speed by 200X, 500X. So much more dramatic improvement uh, on the performance uh, on the inferencing side, uh, especially.
2: It's very interesting. Um, another thing that occurs to me is uh, the the sort of opening up of your database configuration structures. It used to mean you'd have to shard off portions of the application to to different server sets so that you could run sort of various portions simultaneously. And this essentially eliminates that.
1: Right. So this will be an alternative to your database sharding, uh, which is... Uh, popular uh, because there are no other better method uh, than that. And, and sharding can be difficult uh, for a certain kind of database. If you have your data sets completely independent of each other, then you can shard them if you don't have a lot of joins and so on between them. But then there are some databases that are very interrelated and one good example are the graph databases, where all the data kind of entangled together. It's almost impossible to show. And this basically gives you a big memory solution that you can fit the entire graph database. Even if they are you know, a few terabytes or, or tens of terabytes, you can provide a single solution that they can all be fitting the memory and uh, have uh, amazing speed.
2: And and therefore, your application operates a lot more efficiently, and your development with that application becomes a more trivial approach because you don't have to uh, account for those various shards of that
1: database. Yes, exactly. And talking about sharding, uh, let me uh, introduce, I think, is the coolest feature we have so far uh, from our big memory software. By the way, the name of the product is called Memory Machine. It sounds like hardware, but it's actually purely software uh, product. We got inspiration, number one, from machine learning, number two, from virtual machines. These are essentially, I think, what we are trying to do to memory what uh, VMware did for CPUs by providing this virtualization layer and uh, building the bridge to the application without requiring application change. And with, with within the memory machine software, as I mentioned, we have the snapshot capability. And... Besides the crash recovery uh, uh, use case, the second use case is what we call the app cloning use case. And this is an alternative to the sharding use case you mentioned. So uh, sometimes when people do sharding, it's not only when memory doesn't fit, it's also to increase the number of CPUs you can put on a job. Uh, Basically, to allow you to scale out uh, your processing. Uh, capabilities. And uh, how does our app clone work? Uh, with these in-memory databases, many of them are single-thread, like Redis or KDB. These are single-thread in-memory um, applications that are super fast, but they can only use one one core because they are uh, uh, single-threaded. Now, often, when they are overloaded, uh, you need to create another instance, another replica. Um, or clone of the database to alleviate the load on the primary instance. And before you shard it or you replicate it to create more instances, and the process takes a long time and it also takes more resources. What we can do is we call thing app cloning. So app cloning can be thick or thin. And when we do the thing app cloning, we can start newer database instances Of the snapshot you have created before. So you do not actually have to replicate the memory state of that replication, but you can have different processes running off the same physical memory space. But we create two virtual memory spaces for the uh, two instances of the application. So you basically create an instant uh, application clone without replicating the actual memory resource.
0: So you mentioned we didn't really talk about how your snapshot is implemented and you saw about thin and versus thick clones. So, I mean, thin seems to imply that you're providing, you know, like a a modification sort of level of snapshotting where anytime a write occurs to either the snapshot or the, the primary data, you, you replicate that block or byte. I guess, in this case it's being written and, and manipulate some pointers, I guess, (laughs) That says you know how to constitute this this space. Yeah,
1: uh, I think uh, uh, at certain point I need to stop talking because this is uh, the the core technology uh, that we are developing. Uh, I think you are you're zooming right into it. Uh, so the how we are doing this snapshotting is in some way uh, on the logical level similar to how storage snapshots is taking place. You know, when you have writable snapshot, you do all these copy on write or other messes of uh, keeping the fork of different virtual images of that data space, and that's uh, similar here uh, in our case. But we are applying to a media that's a thousand times faster, uh, which is the memory media, that makes it more difficult uh, to do. So as we are doing this, we filed a number of patents uh, to protect our algorithm essentially allow us to manage uh, the ability to providing multiple virtual copies of the memory uh, while maintaining uh, the same physical root and keeping track of all the changes uh, in, the, in the memory through software. Snapshots
0: can be done a number of ways. Obviously, it's crucial in this case to be able to do it quickly and efficiently. And um, snapshots can take a lot of space or a little space, depending on how you imp- implement them. You mentioned thick clones versus thin clones. Obviously, thick clones will take you know, roughly the same amount of space as the original uh, root of the address space.
1: Yeah. So, so we, we have uh, some of the best engineers in this area who have created the world's best snapshotting system before. And we spent the last three years perfecting this and they believe they have done the best work in their life uh, with uh, this uh, snapshotting uh, capability.
0: Someday I'd like to take a peek underneath the covers and see what this thing does. But that, that's subject for another discussion. So You mentioned snapshots and you mentioned uh, app cloning. Are there other data services that Membridge supplies?
1: Sure. So the three key data services that we focused on first. Uh, snapshot is the first one. As I mentioned, you can do crash recovery. You can do cloning. You can also simply roll back your application if you like the the classic standard uh, memory uh, snapshot use case. Uh, Besides that, the other two key uh, data services that we are supporting first is uh, uh, replication, that we can support uh, replication of our memory state. We actually have a very good first use case for it, which is a real-time pub subsystem for those uh, market uh, data trading platforms, that we can have a single digit microsecond uh, latency uh, to quickly replicate the trading data to hundreds of processes across multiple servers um, and, uh, and with a high level of consistency and low level of, of jitter, uh, latency and jitter. So so there's a replication capability we are building to our memory machine. Uh, that's the second one. The third is tiering. Um, that we allow the DRAM and persistent memory, both local PMM and remote PMM, to be tiered together to create one large memory pool. Uh, and with intelligent placement, caching, and uh, movement capabilities underneath. So snapshot, replication, tiering are the first three data services that we are providing.
0: Talk to me a little bit about how replication, I mean, what's the interface between replicas? Are you doing, uh, I guess, a synchronous replication, so every byte written to processor A, let's say, is replicated to its twin someplace else?
1: So uh, memory replication is done a little differently from uh, storage uh, replication, but conceptually we do support both synchronous and asynchronous replication. It's a configurable option um, the, uh, uh, as you do this replication. And we are still working on various use cases of uh, re- replication. So far, we, we have made available the first use case, which is this PubSub use case. On our roadmap, we will um, uh, essentially building other use cases on top of our memory to memory replication module. Um, uh, but that's up and coming. Uh, but it, conceptually, you can see that it's a configurable module, support both synchronous and asynchronous memory-to-memory replication.
0: And and the tiering solution uh, is sort of the the way you provide the scale out store is scale out memory.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's one. And even locally on a single server, uh, that uh, we can support. Uh, a tiering between DRAM and PMEM. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, uh, the, the, even on a single node, there are some uh, uh, differences between this uh, our software memory machine tiering with uh, Intel memory mode uh, that we are more flexible in terms of ratio between DRAM and PMEM, and uh, also we can be dynamically reconfigured. Um, and in certain cases, our performance is also better than the hardware
0: so so tell tell me how dynamic reconfiguration works in this config yeah you know, so it, from an Intel perspective, you could say this much is memory mode and this much is app direct mode, and you set that up in the BIOS and until you boot, you can't change it. In your case, I guess the whole persistent memory is could be well it depends on the bios i guess you know it could be a portion of it that's memory mode the rest of its application direct and within that application direct segment let's say how does how does your reconfiguration work and what, what are we reconfiguring i guess
1: sure sure so uh with our um memory machine uh the entire um persistent memory are in app direct mode so so we don't need uh, it to be in memory mode or storage mode it's all in app direct mode um, and and then we presenting it to the different applications there could be multiple applications running on this server and they could even be more multiple machine uh, virtual machines running on this uh, physical server
0: so you're effectively presenting it multiple address spaces I guess
1: right we basically provide multiple address spaces. We can configure it at a per application level. You can have different configurations of your memory space.
0: And reconfiguration would say, okay, this application was using a terabyte and this other application was using five. Uh, so I need to change it to three and three or something like that. Is that how this would work?
1: Yeah, that can happen d- dynamically. And also uh, the, the actual... Uh, Actual content of that one or three or five terabytes can change. You know, you can say, I want this memory to be one part DRAM, eight part PMEM. And the other one, you can say it's one part, four part. The other one, I say, you know, have it all to be PMEM. And then at certain time, you think you need a little bit more or less DRAM for this memory space, you can configure that uh, on the fly.
0: Let me let me try to understand what you've just said there. The whole persistent memory is effectively app direct and is managed by the memory machine. But I could say a certain portion of let's say the 6 terabytes, 1 terabyte could be memory mode accessed and the other could be app direct accessed. Is that? But and you're you're effectively mimicking that access through memory the memory machine?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so let me. Uh, uh, so the short answer is yes, but let me give you a more complete picture in an example. Let's say you, if you have a total of six terabytes of persistent memory, they are all configured in the hardware in the App Direct mode, and now you run Memory Machine. Uh, you let us manage this six terabytes persistent memory and maybe another you know five twelve gigabytes of DRAM. Let's say, um, and then uh, uh, above us are Let's say five different applications running, and uh, let's say application one, they just want to use a, a memory uh, service, and we basically provide them a memory service, transparent memory service to them, and and this can be I can use one terabyte of PMAN plus plus you know one hundred gigabytes of DRAM, uh, put that together, presenting a you know one point uh, one terabytes of memory service to that and let's say another second application i need a lot of memory but i don't care as much about speed i need 3 terabytes of memory service but all on pmap and i want to be able to do one minute per second uh, one snapshot per minute uh, configuration on that 3 terabytes i'll configure a 3 terabytes memory space to that application number 2 with the uh, also with our memory mode but turn down the snapshot capability the third application maybe they just want to use the app direct we can pass through direct to them as well. And the fourth application, maybe it's a new developer, want to use a, a new method of using persistent memory. And we actually deliver the SDK. Uh, in addition to the transparent memory service, in the, in the first two applications, I can provide the SDK to the developers where their control of our memory service can be even more granular and more powerful. Um, so and the fifth application, maybe they just want to use memory again and uh, we can just provide a memory service. So between them, uh, we used up most of the PMEM and most of the DRAM. And in the middle, if any of them want to change, we can change the configuration for them on the fly. And all these services are enabled from our software. So software-defined memory service uh, you know, really with different service levels to different applications.
0: Um- The operating environment is controlled through an administrative panel available to a web service, or is there an management server or something like that that controls this? So uh,
1: both. Uh, We we have a a REST API uh, that connects to our graphic user interface to essentially have a dashboard. You get a view of all the applications and what memory you're configuring for them, and you can configure different data services. Uh, for each of those applications from your panel, from your management panel, GUI. Uh, We also supply a a command line, which allows you to automate a lot of these tasks through scripting, or you can just, you know, for a lot of administrators, they prefer to go in command line and do anything they want. So both GUI and command line are used to manage our uh, memory virtualization platform.
0: God, this is well. Listen, this has been extremely impressive, uh, Charles. I I didn't realize you had all this capability. Um, so, Matt, is there any last questions for Charles before we close?
2: Uh, well, my mind is spinning a bit, Ray. Uh, I think that as I as I try to digest, I'll probably come up with more. But uh, at the moment, I'd have
1: to say no.
0: All right, Charles, anything you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close?
1: Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. First of all, you haven't missed much because all this we essentially just announced yesterday. So this is all fresh off the press. Um, And we we have been heads down developing this over the three years. So it's our pleasure to share this with you. And and we believe what we created is going to be a transformative technology. This is not another storage technology. This is a different and a new animal. This is what we call big memory. This basically turning memory to become much bigger, persistent, and highly available. And the effect, I believe, if we do everything well, and if the hardware side cooperates, over the next 10 years, we'll see more and more mainstream applications moving to in-memory processing mode. And the performance tier of storage will become less necessary as the memory start answering to all the needs that an application uh, needed. So this means tens of billions of dollars of market shifting from a storage system to an in-memory system. We think it's a big happening uh, in the industry, and we are happy to be the first mover in this space. And our EAP, uh, Early Access Program, is available now. So come to our website if any of the listeners are interested in in kicking the tire. I think there are a number of use cases where you can see benefits of 100X, 200X from this uh, big memory processing.
0: Well, this has been great. Thank you very much, Charles, for being on our show today. My pleasure. Next time, we'll talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. And please review us on iTunes and Google Play and Spotify as this will help us get the word out. That's it for now. Bye, Matt. Well, bye, Ray. And bye, Charles. Okay, bye-bye. Until next time.